Welcome everybody. Hello and again welcome to the Forum for European Philosophy Consilience Panel Discussion. And this is our session on the ethics of cognitive sciences. My name is Bahadur Bahrami from University College London, and I'm very honored here to be with Sarah Edwards, Sarah Richmond, and, and Roger Brownsworth uh, with you, uh, hopefully having this interesting discussion today. Uh, the topic is, is going to be the ethics of cognitive sciences, privacy, and respect for persons. Uh, so I will just skip the, the, the uh, standard introduction I, I, because I, I just assume that if you are here with this very specific topic, you have already read what it is about and then you are not here by accident. So I'll just tell you that what the, the way this will work is that we will have 10-minute presentations by each of the uh, speakers, first starting with Ms. Edwards and then going to, to Ms. Richmond and then uh, from there to, to, to Mr. Professor Browns and Brownsworth. And uh, uh, then after that first 30 minutes, we will have panel discussions for, for another 30 minutes, questions between the panel members. And the final half hour, or maybe earlier, we will go for questions from the audience. So without further ado, I'll, I'll just start with you. Please. Thank you very much. Um, as you all know, um, cognitive science uses um, the full range of, of different scientific methods, um, from simple structured questionnaires um, through to the use of very advanced, um, high-resolution um, imaging equipment. Um, but they all seem to share the same objective, and that is to discover facts about the mind. Um, how, how it represents the world um, and how it reasons. Um, and the, these methods are largely unavailable to, um, to people um, in sort of everyday folk encounters. So there's speci something special about the methods we're using to uncover these facts. Um, but simply because these methods aren't widely available to, um, to the laity, um, it raises all sorts of um, difficult questions, um, one of which, of course, um, is privacy. Um, before we can pass judgment on how best um, to protect our privacy interests um, in, well, scanning particularly, um, there are several questions that it's important to, to ask and think about. Um, for example, is there anything special about the brain and about brain images? We often think of the brain as being um, the seat of our souls, the source of all value of our creativity um, and of our mental freedom. Um, is it our inner sanctum that um, is out of bounds for science? What can brain scanning equipment actually do? Um, we might be thinking um, of possible future worlds um, that are at the moment um, fictional. Um, we think of the, the brave new world of um, remote scanning by the, the state, um, of the thought police. But there are important 
theoretical and practical limitations of physics and of biology on what these technologies um, might be able to do, even with a lot of research and technological advance. Um, we have um, PET scans, um, positron emission um, tomography, um, that require ionising um, substances to be injected um, into um, a person before they can be scanned. Then we have EEG, or um, electronic um, encephalography, um, which at the moment isn't, um, isn't terribly um, well d- detailed in its scanning. It gives low-resolution um, information um, of a quite crude nature. And then we have functional um, MRI scans, um, which are, of course, um, limited um, by the fact that, at the moment, they're very large, they're cumbersome, um, and largely confined to medical environments. Um, Theoretically, a magnetic field would have to be um, confined Um, Now, we could imagine a magnetic field in a room or a corridor um, that would be physically um, confined enough to make such scanning um, useful and feasible. Um, But within these inherent limitations of technology, the sorts of experiments that, um, that we see to date have involved um, setting um, predefined choices um, and following single thought processes um, to capture what, what people are thinking in one instant. How these thoughts are put together and how we might capture multiple thoughts um, from one source remains elusive. Now, the sort of environment that we see these scanners, um, we might think is wholly um, restricted to medical environments, but this isn't so. We've been hearing um, just before um, we came in that there's now an Android app that allows you to, um, to scan your own brain to some extent. And for quite a while, we've been able to hire out um, EEG equipment of a very crude nature just to tell us whether our right or our left brain um, is working um, more so than the other. The availability of this sort of technology, um, we might find, is, um, is crucial to how we think about questions of privacy. Following one of the legal cases um, in the United States, um, which proved a challenge for their Fourth Amendment, um, designed to protect um, a citizen from unwanted and unwarranted stop and searches um, by the police, um, we see the case of um, um, Kilo, who um, was initially convicted um, of growing um, marijuana um, in his house. Um, the waste heat had been detected coming out of um, some, um, some hole in his um, premises, and this was detected um, by the police using um, thermal imaging technology. His conviction was overturned on appeal on grounds that um, this thermal imaging technology wasn't widely available. At some point it might be, in which case um, the grounds for that um, appeal 
um, would have disappeared. But this leads us on to ideas of um, consent. In this case, of course, um, consent hadn't been sought and a violation of privacy um, was, um, um, was seen simply because consent hadn't been sought. But even when consent is um, granted, would that be a sufficient uh, measure to protect a person's privacy? Might we have reasonable expectations of privacy even if we're in the public environment? If we're in a um, public payphone, um, might we have a reasonable expectation that there wouldn't be eavesdropping devices um, attached round the back? And are we ready to give up some of these um, rights? We've been hearing um, again before we came in that um, on some occasions, yes, we seem to be um, very ready to give up these rights in exchange for material goods of one sort or another. Um, But then there are questions um, that we see which seem to threaten our ability to give consent And this is a a general problem with research where people um, think that they have a therapeutic benefit um, to a scan, for example, Um, whereas, in fact, these may be used for completely non-therapeutic purposes and may actually be used um, for purposes that are damaging to the person's interests. And images being images, they, they reveal lots more um, than perhaps we would anticipate um, at first. Um, we might find um, that images provide unwanted and incidental findings um, that can't be erased um, once the image is out there. But while we might be ready to give up some of these rights to privacy... Once they're used for ill purpose, then we can be sure that someone will object. We have on the horizon um, questions of um, biofeedback. We might be able to use these images for our own good, Um, but then they could be used for research and accessible by third parties. And currently, we know that um, such uses are regarded as um, compatible with the original theoretical use um, for for the images. Um, But it'd be wise to think about um, how technology will advance in the future, given some of the limitations of physics and of biology, um, so that we don't just sleepwalk into um, some of these fictional um, scenarios um, we might be um, all, all thinking about um, where scanning becomes routine and where our minds are more or less transparent Excellent So, uh, yes Please. Thank you. you. Okay, I'm Sarah Richmond and I teach um, philosophy at UCL. And I think this is an excellent moment to plug a book (laughs) which um, Sarah Edwards and myself, um, with Geraint Rees, the three of us, co edited it. And it includes, um, it's on just the topic of 
this evening. And it includes actually essays by all three speakers. Um, so I did want to make sure everybody was aware of this book, which came out last year. Um, with the title, which has been criticised, actually, a reviewer was quite harsh about it, saying, we thought it was quite an attention-grabbing title, I know what you're thinking. But um, it did get criticised on the grounds that it was far too sensationalist, um, that, you know, we were far from being able to tell what people are thinking with this technology, and therefore it was sort of overselling things. And actually that's one of the things I wanted to make a brief comment about, this idea that perhaps there's a lot of hype in this area and that we need to um, maybe calm down a little bit before um, we over-sensationalise it and I think it's more distinctive in the kinds of questions that it raises than it is. But the first um, remark I wanted to make was in the title of tonight's panel we've got the word privacy, uh, respect as well as the word privacy and um, I think this notion of respect is an important notion that we need to hang on to in this discussion because very frequently what people start worrying about are particular gains or losses that might um, come about if some specific piece of information is no longer within their control or is made public. But that doesn't exhaust the question of why people might care about their privacy and in particular might attach importance to um, information about their brain processes. So one author who's written in this area made the point, I thought, quite well by reminding us of the character of Eliza Doolittle in Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, who I'm sure all of you will remember. When Higgins, Professor Higgins, is out recording her and marvelling at her accent and making notes and so on, she responds to him very angrily, and one of the things she says in is... I ain't done nothing wrong. Now, that objection is the obvious kind of worry that there might be something in the information that would cause you harm if it were made public. But, of course, that, that worry, I ain't done nothing wrong, isn't the only worry that people have about incursions into their privacy. I think a more fundamental worry is something to do with the attitude of respect. So it's not a worry about what will be done with the information. It's a worry about this information is my business. It doesn't have to be damaging to me or damage my reputation. It's just my business, and it therefore should be respected as such. So the other response that Eliza Doolittle or the bystanders make is, what are you staring at? And that, I think, comes closer to what we have in mind when we're talking about an attitude of respect. It's not, I don't want you to find this out, but I don't want you to have that attitude towards me. That, that's not an attitude you're entitled to have, at least not without my consent. And another way in which the same point can be illustrated um, if you think of an ornithologist watching the behaviour of magpies or something out in the fields, nobody would say that there was some objection to his or her doing that on behalf of the magpies, as it were. Birds, 
We don't, birds don't care about their privacy. We have no reason to think birds care about their privacy. But we do. So the minute this ornithologist turns her binoculars onto us, whatever we're doing, we do have this tendency to respond, what are you staring at? Um, and I think that's an important point. So the danger, if we don't bear that in mind, is that we're only going to think in consequentialist terms, and I think that that is a mistake. Um, now, in, in the paper I wrote in this book, I tried to think about how things might be if really it did become possible via brain imaging technology for people to know what we were thinking or what was going on in our minds. Because after all, at the moment, by and large, our minds are not um, accessible to other people. Of course, we give ourselves away some of the time involuntarily by blushing or whatever. But we do tend to think that a lot of the thoughts that go through our minds are not accessible to others unless we wish to publicise them. So the question I tried to think about was, well, supposing somehow they did become accessible to others, how would that be? And what I ended up thinking was that it is such a counterfactual possibility that we really um, probably have no idea how things would be because so much would change the minute that really was a reality. And what it, the kind of thought experiment made me think of um, Judith Jarvis Thompson's very famous thought experiment in her paper, her classic paper about abortion. She said, imagine how it would be if instead of people reproducing in the way they currently reproduce, instead of that, people grew out of seeds. And if a people's seed... Um, flew in through your window and implanted itself, let's say, in your carpet, um, then it would grow ultimately into a person. Imagine if that's the way people reproduced. And she then tried to follow up this analogy and say, would we force people to go on nurturing these people's seeds, even if they'd taken every possible measure they could to put mesh on their windows and try and stop these people's seeds getting in? And, of course, that was supposed to be roughly an analogy to somebody who'd tried hard responsibly to use contraceptive techniques but found themselves unwillingly pregnant. Well, this is a mad thought experiment because if people really did reproduce by way of growing in your carpet from seeds, so many other aspects of our social arrangements would be different anyway that I think it's somewhat odd to think that we can seriously think about this possibility. So I did want to issue a note of sort of caution, which isn't something philosophers are very um, prone to, about this particular line of thought. How would it be if our minds were somehow transparent to others? So that's putting aside all the worries about whether we're actually anywhere near achieving it in practical terms. So that's something that... Um, a neuroscientist might be able to tell us something about. How much longer have I got or have I run out? No, you, you've got another two or three minutes. I've got another two or three minutes. I'd just like to raise um, one more thing that, in connection with this thought experiment. So what's often cited 
of course, in connection with this worry about mental transparency, is the vulnerability that we all feel in relation to, as it were, our public persona. We control it very carefully. There's all kinds of things we would say in public that we wouldn't say in private, and so on. So how would it be if that line began to be eroded? And again, our instinct is perhaps to think that it's terrible. And as I've said, I think in very serious ways it's difficult for us to talk about this question at all. But one point I did want to make is that people see the costs very readily because what we all think about is our investment in hiding things from others. But it did occur to me that a great many of the things we hide from other people and we might be ashamed of are actually things we might not really need to be ashamed of. We might be misreading the way in which other people might react if they knew some of this information. So it could be indeed, I'm thinking of a sort of very large magnification of something like a group therapy session where people end up saying to each other, you were worried about that, why were you worried about that? I'm just the same. It could be that actually there were some benefits too about a situation in which we were less able than we currently are to keep things to ourselves because at some level we're ashamed of them. And so I just wanted to raise this question of shame as well in relation to privacy because they're obviously very closely interconnected. So I'll leave it there. Okay, thank you so much, Sarah. So I think we'll just carry on with Roger. I'm sorry if um, <laughs> we can't. It's very difficult for me to peer around this lectern, so I'm afraid it'll have to be audio only, if you bear with me. Um, do you want to change places? I can do if you wish, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, a good idea. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we are. Thanks very much. Um, well, just to explain where I was, where I come from on on this, I, I got interested uh, quite a few years ago in the way law and regulation more generally deals with emerging technologies. And by the time I became interested in this, information technology and biotechnologies, both human genetics and, and, and agricultural biotech, were the two big streams of technology that were of, of real interest and the difficulties of trying to um, wrap regulatory frameworks, get the right kind of regulatory environment for these technologies was, was what was interesting me. Um, but as I was working on, on trying to think about the regulatory environment for these two streams of technology. First of all, nanotechnologies and then neurotechnologies became uh, really hot topics for discussion. The sense was that there were rapid technological developments going on in these two streams. Um, and so that's the way in which I came to be interested, among other things, in uh, neurotechnologies and the, the problems they pose for us uh, in, in, in thinking about how to regulate them. So I'm going to just try to introduce this by talking about talking to three three issues really, quite quite large issues. But first of all to say something about how I think the discourse or the debates about emerging technologies goes, the, the kind of concerns that people have. Privacy is somewhere in the mix there, but it's not the only kind of concern. And then secondly, I'll say something about privacy. Sarah Richmond's already prefigured quite a bit of what I want to say about this, but I, I, nevertheless I'll say it again, uh, which is how seriously we take privacy or not. 
Uh, and then I'll say something about dignity. Um, and the reason for this being that um, in Europe, uh, without noticing it, actually, we have committed ourselves to, to human dignity as being, you know, perhaps uh, the, 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 overriding, the overriding value. After the Treaty of Lisbon, this dignity is right there at the top of the list. And um, uh, it's, it's a value that doesn't really resonate terrifically strongly in the UK, unlike across the water in continental Europe. Um, so I'll say something about... On the one hand, the scepticism I have about rather conservative dignitarian views, but on the other hand, um, a view which is digressing a little bit, but a view that is saying, look, there is something here that is profoundly important about the way we order our societies and how this plays for both law, ethics and religion in the future. So, first of all, um, what does the landscape look like? Uh, well, broadly speaking, where new technologies or, of any of the streams I've talked about uh, appear, uh, where money is to be made out of these technologies and where uh, there is research interest in these technologies, there will be a lobby, of course, that is saying be very careful about the way you regulate here, don't over-regulate. Don't kill the technology by over-regulating. Okay? Um, so there are people who are just technophiles who want the field clear of regulation and you know just if we come if there are problems that arise um, then you know we'll deal with them as and when don't try and anticipate too many problems and regulate unnecessarily and of course information I say information technology largely developed in, 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 in an environment that was very very lightly regulated indeed uh, and of course it's delivered rapid penetration of technologies that now just you know are, are embedded in our everyday lives in, in the way that the other technologies are not yet embedded um, so you've got that constituency but against that you have three strong voices I would say speaking out and saying be careful with these technologies we've already heard from Sarah Edwards you know that the, we need to think hard about where we're going with these technologies um, one set of concerns is uh, a concern about the risks that they present. Are they dangerous? Uh, are they going to kill us? I mean, there are worries about, for example, synthetic biology. Some people would say we should never let that out of the out of the laboratory. Even in the laboratory, it's too dangerous. You know, there are there are technologies that could kill us. Uh, they could be catastrophic. We need to regulate those. I mean, the regulation might be prohibit them, but if you're not going to prohibit it, at least make sure that it doesn't have the catastrophic effects that you fear. It could be to our human health and safety or to the environment. So there's concerns there. Some technologies, like biotechnologies, nanotechnologies, elicit those kind of concerns far more than information technology. You don't hear people worrying that information technology is going to kill us. I must say that uh, emailing is almost killing me, but uh, you know, <laughs> um, information technology doesn't come with that kind of health warning generally. Um, the second sort of concern we have is that uh, these technologies should be developed and applied in ways that are compatible with human rights. Uh, human rights need to be respected. And this is where people tap into their concerns about privacy. And information technology has, or at all times, or any kind of surveillance technologies, just provoke this concern straight away. You know, the, the slogans about the surveillance society. Our concerns about what's happening to privacy in communities that, that, that go strong on these technologies in their public ordering. Um, the third sort of concern is, as I say, about human dignity, um, because people will say that whatever happens with these technologies, it shouldn't be allowed to compromise human dignities. Many of these technologies are now being talked about in a way that uh, would enhance human, human capabilities. 
Um, and in these enhancement debates, all the time, you've got a conservative group over here saying, uh, be very careful. Well, not be very careful. No, categorically, no. We shouldn't be doing this. Michael Sandel, I don't know if you know Michael Sandel's work, he's a very eloquent spokesman for this sort of perspective, is saying, from a communitarian point of view, we just don't want this kind of stuff here. The market corrupts, and these technologies of perfection will corrupt us as well. Um, so these are the three concerns about uh, acceptable risks, about human rights and about human dignity. And against that, all the time, you've got people saying on the other side, ah, but don't over-regulate, don't, you know, think about the chill factor, don't, don't, don't kill the technology. Um, so that's, that's the background, uh, and from time to time you do have huge, um, huge hotspots uh, uh, where, where um, these issues come to a head. For example, in the European Court of Justice not very long ago, there was a huge patenting case called Bruce Lee, uh, where the state-of-the-art stem cell research by a German neuroscientist uh, who was trying to develop stem cell responses to Parkinson's disease was ruled to be unpatentable uh, by the European Court of Justice applying a, a European directive from 1998 on the ground for well, quite a simple reason that, 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 that Bruce Lee's research uh, seemed necessarily to involve the destruction of human embryos. His materials were derived from, from human embryos and hu embryo protection is one of the first golden rules really of the dignitarian ethic. So that, that's, that's the general landscape. Now, turning to privacy, uh, we've already heard tonight uh, some, some questions about just how seriously we do take privacy. Are people ready to forego their privacy, to give it away, and so on? Here are four ways in which you might test out how strongly you are actually committed to privacy, four benchmarks for the strength of your privacy commitment. Uh, number one is the point that Sarah, um, that Sarah Richmond's already put on the table, which is, do you think of privacy, I would say, as being akin to property in, in, in the sense, I mean, if I've got, if there's a part of the building here that says private on the door, then that is telling me I shouldn't go in. And maybe, you know, I have private on my forehead, which is saying he shouldn't go in there either. And it's the attempt to access or the accessing of a private area that is a wrong per se, like trespass is a wrong per se. Often the wrong will be accompanied by consequential losses, detriment to the individual. I mean, if someone interrogates my brain and is able to read off some indicators that suggest I'm a bad risk for employers or insurers, rightly or wrongly, and, and, and employers and insurers then mark me up as high risk, um, I'm damaged. Um, and we might often think that what's wrong with privacy is this downstream consequence, oh, sorry, what we worry about is this consequential downstream loss or damage. But the question is, is that really what privacy is about, or is the real wrong of privacy upstream with the initial attempt to access something that is truly private, just my business? Yeah, that's the question. Okay, so that's the first question, or the first benchmark. The second benchmark is, 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 is um, well, it really comes from the jurisprudence, I think. Um, again, we've heard this already tonight, that in, in the 1960s, in a big U.S. Supreme case called Katz, K-A-T-Z, um, the, 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 the U.S. Supreme Court said that um, it wasn't enough for an individual to expect um, a zone to be private, in this case a public phone booth, the, the ha this had to be accompanied by a reasonable expectation of privacy. 
Okay, it wasn't enough that you subjectively thought this should be private. You, this had to be also accompanied by a reasonable expectation, which of course then invites the question, by whose standards do we determine whether or not this is reasonable? And as the law has developed, and as the technologies have rolled out, um, I think that um, reasonableness is judged by reference to what is common practice. So, I mean, I always say, you know, if you do a Google search for any of us here on the panel, uh, you'll find all sorts of stuff up there that we haven't personally authorised or approved. Um, but if we were to say, oh, well, this is a violation of my privacy, uh, we wouldn't have a prayer because, you know, everybody Googles everybody. I mean, it's just, this is just commonplace. Um, and so if you want to take a stand against this, you've got to say the reasonableness of our expectations and is not to be determined simply by what, what, what just goes out there, what is the norm as it were, because the norm drifts in ways that erode the protections that you once might have had. Um, it's like a tide that you know, is going out uh, and leaving you more exposed. And you know, in an exposed place, you say, oh, but what am I by privacy? I'm sorry, the world has changed, the context changed. Your expectation is no longer reasonable. Um, so if you think that reasonable expectations is a good test and you want to stabilise and defend the concept of privacy, then you have to find some, you know, some other way of, 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 of some other criterion for the reasonableness of this expectation. What is it? I think we had the question earlier on again from Sarah Edwards. Is the brain something special? Is there something special about the brain? Something special that we want to try to defend through our concept of privacy, our privacy rights. A third indicator of how seriously we take privacy is how hard we make it for individuals who have privacy rights to be taken to have consented, to have authorised acts which would infringe, which are going to infringe their privacy. How easy is it? Yeah, to, uh, well, I, I, so often um, we are put in positions, uh, for example, when people are talking about data protection, which is not strictly speaking privacy, but, you know, it's, it's a kind of in the same box. Uh, if you're ever in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a building society or some place where they're going to read you your data protection uh, position, I mean, they read it out to you as fast as I can go talking at you now. And, 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 and there will probably be something in there saying you can opt out from this if you wish, but you don't hear it. I mean, it just whizzes past you. Uh, and you're taken to have consented to the onward transmission of this information. Um, and they've done their data protection in due diligence by, by reading this out to you. I mean, it really is very casual indeed. The way you get consented in hospitals in clinical situations is, again, an example of how easy it is for people to be taken to have consented. And, of course, having consented, then <laughs> you, you at least can't complain that anybody's doing you a wrong. Um, so how hard are we going to make it for people to consent um, to, to an act which would otherwise violate their privacy? In the case of property, we make consent quite difficult. You know, we're not opting out. Where we, and if privacy is to be treated in a way that is analogous to property, then you would make it quite tough for people to give a consent. You would say the signalling of consent really has to be pretty explicit. You opt in, not opt out, anything like that. Okay? Or, or again, these fictions that, um, well, we don't really need to bother asking this person because we know they would have consented had they been asked. You know, you're weakening, weakening the requirements all the time. Implied consent. No, I don't think so. So, you know, where do you stand on that? How tough do you want to make it for people to give away their privacy by consenting? And then a fourth indicator of how seriously you take privacy is where you see it as standing in the rank ordering of rights or values. I mean, presumably life is at the, at the top of that rank, rank ordering. Uh, but where does privacy stand? We have 
we have problems where privacy is in competition with freedom of expression. We know it's in the same sort of zone um, there, we, and, and different different legal systems throughout the world strike the balance in different ways. Um, but we think we're in the, in the same zone. Do we think privacy, though, again, to go back to property, is ranking as high as property, or would we think property... Uh, tends to outrank privacy. Uh, I, I mean, again, uh, I, I don't think we have any clear answers to these questions, but you might, you know, as you're pondering on the importance of privacy, just see how it fares for you against those kind of benchmarks. And then thirdly, I'll just try and deal with this quite quickly, um, but uh, for me, the, 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 as a lawyer, the, 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 the most worrying aspect of all this is that... Um, um, Yes, is that where communities have moral aspirations, and all those who contest the notion of human dignity or human rights do have moral aspirations, I think that the lowest common ground between the protagonists is that they all agree it's important for people to try to do the right thing and, moreover, to do the right thing for the right reason. Now, you can only do the right thing for the right reason um, if, um, if you have some freedom um, to, 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 to do the thing you're doing and you have options available to you. So, I mean, as, you might, as it were, you can only be a good person or do the right thing if you could have done the wrong thing. Now, these technologies that we um, are discussing mainly tonight and, and mainly appearing in um, clinical or research medical contexts and settings uh, are potentially usable um, by regulators who are seeing them as tools to channel the way people behave. Uh, in other words, they can be utilised as instruments of social control. Uh, much that starts with good intentions in the world of medicine and health can become a potent instrument within the criminal justice system or some analogous system of control. Um, we already see this with DNA, with DNA profiling, uh, with CCTV, with various tracking and monitoring technologies that are being utilised as part of the regulatory apparatus. And the significance of this for communities, as I say, with moral aspirations, um, is that this can impede um, the attempts of individuals to do the right thing for the right reason. This can create a regulatory environment that is not at all congenial to the setting that moral communities need to have for them to flourish. And it can happen in two stages. So the first stage is is that uh, the technologies are employed in ways that um, and this is surveillance technology especially, we can see you doing this. So if you deviate, if you don't comply, you will be detected. And having been detected, you will be punished. Now, the message or the signal behind CCTV or DNA profiling is we're going to get you. This gives you prudential reasons for staying in line. Just look at the way motorists drive through through those parts of, 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 of the road that are monitored by speed cameras. You know, uh, they're not doing the right thing there. They're looking after their own skins. They don't want to have penalty points on their licenses, those drivers. Okay, they'll accelerate as soon as they're out of the zone that's being, you know, subject to surveillance. Um, okay, so, but, but these signals that we get from these surveillance technologies 
and if in future you know, imaging technologies are part of the surveillance apparatus, then the message is you should do this because it's in your own, your own interest. Don't do it. There's nothing noble about this. If you want to avoid punishment, stay in line because these technologies are going to get you otherwise. Okay, so that's the first stage. But the second stage of uh, these technologies impacting on the way we order our societies is to go, is, is one stage further, it's now to exclude by technological management the options that are available to you, are practically available to you. Uh, you see this in online environments all the time. These are very, very heavily managed environments, technologically managed. You don't need to have rules and regulations so much for in, a, in online environments because the technology can simply fix things in a way that you can't get in. I mean, if you've lost your password or whatever it is, you know, you just can't get into this, into this, through this door. Um, and that model, I think, is likely to be copied across into what remains of our offline worlds so that technologies are used, whether they're neurotechnologies or nano, bio, info technologies, robotics, I mean, a whole, any, whatever technologies there are, are going to be deployed in ways that manage these environments. So where we are in these environments, we, we only have certain options available to us, the options that the regulators are willing to, for us to have. And if the regulators are morally minded, they'll have a certain moral script for us, and they will set these environments in a way that we can only do the right thing relative to their moral standards. Okay? Uh, and, of course, in doing this, there's no virtue in doing this, uh, no virtue whatsoever, because uh, in doing the right thing, we're not doing it freely, we're not doing it for the right reason. There's a great piece by a Canadian regulatory theorist called Ian Kerr, who talks about various technologies that are embedded in various kinds of carts, for starting with supermarket trolleys. Supermarkets lose lots of their trolleys. People wheel them away. Uh, you can have as many rules and signs saying, you know, that, that this will be punished, this will be penalised, but people will still wheel the trolleys away until you fit them out with GPS technologies that means that once you get to a certain point in the car park, they will not go any further. So you can't trolley them away. Similarly, Ian talks about an experience he had on a golf course where he's on a golf cart um, approaching the green and at the golf course they don't want you to take the cart onto the green but again the cart is engineered in a way that the technology prevents you taking it onto the green. It just is immobilised when you get to a point where where you look as though you might be approaching the green. There's no virtue at all. In res there's no respect. to go. You know, there's no respect there. Although your conduct is respectful in, 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 in appearance, you don't actually respect others. Okay? It's right what we say about robots. You know, Sh Sherry Turkle says... Um, uh, robots, yes, they can care. They can care for us, but they don't care about us. That you can have the performance through the technology, but you don't really have what we think is essential in moral communities uh, in, in our relationship with one another. So, if we are worried about. Um, the, the prospectus for moral communities in the sense of people doing the right thing for the right reason then we need to worry about technologies like brain imaging or neuroimaging, which, which at this stage are largely in, I think, the medical domain and research domain, but which could then translate across into, you know, into the general community as ordering devices. 
Um, and I mean, I, I, I can. Colin Blakemore says, well, you know, you're obsessive about this. Uh, why does it matter if people do the right thing? Why they actually do it? All that matters is that they do the right thing. But I. I if you understand the moral community in the way I've described it, and the ideal typical performance is that you make up your mind what's the right thing to do. You freely do it then for that reason. Then I'm afraid that doing what someone else thinks is the right thing isn't the same thing at all. And doing it where you don't have any other options definitely isn't the same thing at all. So as a lawyer, uh, I worry about this. I think as ethicists, we ought to worry about this because this is going way beyond the impingement of, of these technologies on privacy. This, this is a scenario where these technologies uh, take over as regulatory instruments and squeeze out the traditional regulatory instruments that we've had, which are law and ethics. So. Thank you so much. That was very, very interesting. So uh, I guess now we will proceed to questions and answers between the panel members. So, so I'll just, if, if there's any points that you want to raise and discuss, please feel free. And just get a bottle of water. Oh, yes, sure. There you are. Can I just have a yeah. There you are. Thanks. So maybe perhaps I could start with my question. Uh, my background is in empirical neuroscience, so uh, I'm quite newcomer to this uh, whole discussion. That's partially why I, I, I participated and also I've been reading the book. So uh, my question was, if, uh, like when, when we think about these issues, uh, one thing that comes to mind generally is uh, that we all have these fears of how things may go wrong if we get the ethical issues and, and the regulatory issues wrongly. And perhaps the best example is, is the information technology and how it, it started with very little regulation and now it seems to be out of hands with, with, with how much of uh, like mm, penetration there is into, into everybody's uh, in, in like like personal information, uh, so is there any successful previous case of of anything similar in history where we could say that we have dealt with successfully have raised the ethical issues in time before the technology took over, and we have actually by the time it became part of our lives we could more or less be, be, be proud of what we did. Is there any case by, that, that by looking at, we can kind of go, okay, we did it once before, now we are going to do this once again and, and follow the same kind of idea and uh, hopefully by the time brain scanning becomes as, as, as available as, as cell phones, then, then we will be fine. Well, I, I, I think an obvious um, example of that um, and the possible model is the way that in the UK we came to regulate uh, IVF. Um, we had the Warnock Committee set up in 1984-85 and they spent several years deliberating. It was, I think it was a Royal Commission, so they must have had broad consultation on, 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 on this question. Um, I mean, this was hugely controversial at the time. You know, the, the assisted conception was, 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 was highly problematic. And um, Warnock made, made then those recommendations, which 
uh, took four years or so in Parliament before the, the politicians got the Human Fertilisation Embryology Act on the statute book in 1990. The main problem in Parliament was that um, a, a lot of politicians were again worried about uh, the um, use of human embryos for research. That was the, the big sticking point. But they got, um, they got the legislative framework in place. They had the, the HFEA as the regulatory authority. And although the HFEA has had a rocky time uh, over the years, uh, I think many people would point to this and say, well, this, this is at least one plausible way of trying to, um, to, to handle these emerging technologies. Um, it's not going to be done in a secretive way. It's going to be transparent, and it's going to be done in a way that, that I mean, people talk about a social license for these technologies. You could plausibly say that um, assisted conception had a social license um, because it was so, you know, debated, so broadly debated and had the benefit of the Warnock Committee's expert deliberations to, you know, to, to, fo to focus the issues. Um, that's not to say that everybody uh, in the UK would have been happy with, with, with the outcome, um, but um, I think that this was, you know, clinics were licensed and, and people knew where IVF was available and say, oh, yes, that's... Reproductive cloning, on the other hand, was something that you know um, we're not able to do anyway. But 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 uh, I don't think anyone, someone's doing it somewhere in the world that I don't know about. But uh, you know, but, but when there was a possibility that that should happen, um, uh, there seemed to be broad public support for a prohibition. People were very worried about this, whether rightly or wrongly, but they were. And um, Parliament put a you know prohibition in place very quickly on that one. The, the legislation went through Parliament, I think, in under two weeks, which was you know almost in the Guinness Book of Records. Um, I suppose one one thought, your question, one very obvious thought it raises is um, about the limits of a particular state, anyway, trying to regulate um, many modern developments. So. Even with um, assisted conception, um, the rules, as everyone knows, are quite a bit laxer in the United States than they are here. So we have had people traveling abroad in order to uh, pay surrogate mothers and so on. So I'm just wondering, I mean, this is a question, not really a reply, but whether we feel um, that, you know, perhaps pessimistic until we have more sense of global cooperation about the chances of um, regulating some of these things to our satisfaction. And it's not clear to me um, what sorts of lessons we might learn from looking at those sorts of technologies. Um, I mean, privacy seems to me to be, you know, so very different from... Um, you know, assisted conception yeah. um, when you're bringing um, another life in, into the world. Um, and we've got so many technologies um, that are already out there that threaten privacy. Um, it would be very difficult even now to, um, to stem that tide. Um, so quite, you know, what we'd be able to do with even specific regulation of, of neuroscience now is, is hard to tell. But I, th I think it might. Do, do you feel that it might be worth um, um, emphasising um, the sort of the methods we might use to collect um, brain scans or, or sort of mental um, information, um, as opposed to the content of, of that information? 
So th I think we're, we run the risk of underestimating um, our sort of folk capabilities of reading others. I mean, yes, um, you know, the more we get to know um, our friends, the more we can predict um, what they're going to do, their preferences, whether they might want a coffee in the morning. We don't necessarily, you know, ask, <laughs> you know, their consent necessarily. We, we, we just go ahead and buy it and, um, and, and are very surprised when they decided they wanted tea that day. Um, and perhaps um, we're also sort of overestimating what, um, what the methods that cognitive science currently has to offer uh, might yield. Is it, is it an extension of what we already do, or is there something sort of brand new about um, neuroscience? I think that um, I would want to press the regulators on um, to see whether you know, we need to be very worried now. Um, okay. Well, I, I, I think you could see, you say at the moment, um, particularly the, the more high-level imaging, is going on in, in very much controlled environments where we have the, the possibility of regular. I mean, it's not as though yeah. people in clinical or research settings are going in, uh, they're not being coerced or duped into it. You know, they're giving informed consent. So uh, you, could, you might think, well, everything's fine. Um, and in a sense, these are like places that are licensed to do this work. Um, we're satisfied that the, the, the imaging uh, equipment, by and large, um, is, is not dangerous. I mean, it's not going to kill people. Um, but uh, what if, if, if imaging, imaging kit, kits became more widely available, much cheaper, more widely distributed? Um, uh, and then kind of the cat's out of the bag because... Uh, how it's, it's like it's like with DNA profiling, really, with sequencing. I mean, you know, once upon a time, you might say the only place where this would have gone on would have been in very controlled environments, and and, and now you know you can it's commercially exploitable, and people are getting this kind of information online. And, and I mean, if, if if we elicit people's preferences um, in any other um, way, um, so we we might have. You know, preferences about um, know, tea, tea or coffee, um, for example. Um, yes, we, we might um, um, be able to sort of spot somebody's eye looking towards, um, you know, the coffee machine. Um, we may not need to have, you know, um, neuroscience for that. And if we did have a ready-made, um, you know, um, EEG, um, you know, equipment to hand. It might not give us any more information than no. we'd be able to no. um, to glean through other methods. No. Um, so might 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 we want to sort of look at um, the sorts of things that um, this technology would tap into, um, as much as you know the the, the methods and the uh, the hype that we have over you know, the, the whizzy technology as it is. Yeah, I, I, Sarah, I, I mean, uh, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about um, a similar sort of story, I think, with genetics, where uh, initially the thought was that the information derived by geneticists would be hugely uh, important for, say, insurers or employers, um, and may, or, uh, maybe even in, in, in the criminal justice system too. And then in the early days of, of imaging, you think, oh, well, gosh, this is going to be dynamite for insurers or employers. Uh, but then perhaps it turns out it's not. 
just like for time, genetics hasn't seemed to have, you know, insurers and employers can find out what they need to know about people in other ways, and there's no real added value. Um, so uh, whether you need to regulate that, I'm not sure. Be, well, because commercial people will make their own commercial judgments fairly quickly and realise that, that this actually isn't going to help them, so they, they lose interest in it. But, um, I mean, there, there, could, there could certainly be informal codes that would... That would, that would help employers or insurers develop sensible practices, I would say. Um, again, you know, one of the, the, some years ago, there was a guy called David Collinridge who gave his name to a dilemma, which is that with all these technologies, in the early days, we don't really know what the problems are. Mm-hmm. By the time we've got the profile of the technology pretty clearly in focus and know what we need to regulate, it's too late because they've either, you know, they now either have great commercial value, which people aren't prepared to, to back off, or, or you know... Um, but also, I think the point you made about the definition of a reasonable expectation is also going to change. Yeah. So there's another sense in which... Yeah. It's going to be too late, or with hindsight, we might think that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm very critical about about the way that we we've utilised privacy as as a convenient. Uh, kind of peg whenever we have a very broad range of concerns. If you say the way the privacy has been, you know, exploited uh, in different jurisprudence around the world. I mean, after all, you know, in U.S. jurisprudence, privacy, although it doesn't appear in the U.S. Constitution, is actually at the basis of, you know, um, the pro-choice position in Roe and Wade and, you know, in the big abortion case. And... um, you think, well, what's actually what has that got to do with privacy? And, and there's privacy in relation to land and, and real estate, and there's privacy in relation to information. And here it's the informational privacy that we're trying to grapple with. But it's nestling alongside data protection and confidentiality. And I think we're quite muddled in the way we, we, we think about these, 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 these different interests we have. You know, if, if privacy really, really matters to us in a way that we can just say, look... Um, this is my business. Just back off. It's nothing to do with you. you it's, it's wrong for you even to try to access this. Then what kind of information is it that could attract such a strong protection? So I can just say, I don't care how beneficial it is to you or how non-detrimental it is to me. It's mine. Just like I can say about a piece of, you know, like a book that I happen to... You might say, I'd, li- I'd love to read this. Suppose this were mine. <laughs> so I'd love to read this book. And I Everybody say... Should. Yeah. Sure, yeah, and I say, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's mine. And you say, but you're not reading it, or you've already read it, you've no use for it. Oh, it's irrelevant, it's mine. I can just say, you know, uh, in, in those terms, if it's property, and if privacy is analogous, then I can just say, look, this information, it's none of your business, it's mine. But what sort of information would it be that would be of that order? I mean, and is it information that, that is, as in imaging, showing you something about you know, the functioning of the brain, but I'm not sure that it's telling us anything about the mental life of, of, of those agents, you know. Um, uh. Yeah, I, I was actually, uh, in relation to both of these uh, matters, uh, I was reminded of a case that uh, is not a particular, like, is, is something that you see if you practice psychiatry a lot. Uh, and I'm, I'm bringing up this, this story because it relates to how... Uh, a, a, for example, a mind-reading technology may actually change the way we think about and the way things happen around us uh, in relation to what Sarah was saying about 
uh, like when and if we have uh, new technologies, then, then many, many different things will change in unpredictable ways. Uh, one thing that you see in schizophrenia patients a lot uh, is the, the, the symptom uh, that we, the, the, we call idea of broadcast. So a lot of schizophrenic patients believe that their thoughts are being broadcast from TV or radio. A lot of them think that everybody knows what is happening in their head all the time, particularly the, the case with, with TV is, is, is very relevant for them. Like, like a lot of them do report that they think, well, TV is talking about what, what I'm thinking about right now. I had this specific patient who uh, thought or was, was convinced that, that a famous rock star, English rock star, uh, with whom he had, he had been friends, I don't know if it was right or not, uh, but back when, when they were in college, had, had implanted a device in his head and would, would steal all, all the musical ideas that would come to his head and, and, and generate his new albums and, and, and get a lot of money out of them. Now, for us, for me when I was a medical student, this was a completely mad idea with, 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 with all sorts of things that you would say, okay, this is, this is a perfect case of psychosis. Now, in 20 years' time, can you say that this is a case of psychosis? Can you actually then perhaps use this kind of information or this kind of argument to section a person and say that this person is not capable of or, or is, is going through a major psychotic delusion and therefore not capable of like, like holding on to, to, to his property, for example? So uh, what I was saying is that when, when, when the new if the new technology gets to that stage of being able to broadcast your app, do your thoughts, then things will be different because a lot of people who you may act normally right now consider mad may actually now turn into just normal people. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way these, um, these phenomena, possibly we should react to them as that they show us actually that these issues do matter to us hugely. Mm. So rather than sort of thinking these are pathological people and there's absolutely no reason why we should take their concerns seriously, I think often it's actually truer that they're just an extreme case with their concerns, showing us concerns that everybody might have, but not quite extremely. And so while you were talking, the first thing I thought of was paranoia. I mean, so sometimes when people react to CCTV cameras and they get very, very worked up about it, they're accused of being paranoid. But actually, maybe we should turn it round and think, these reactions are telling us something. We may not be very good at conceptualizing why they matter to us, but they're telling us that these things do matter to us. Um, yeah. And presumably the patient wasn't very happy. No, definitely not. Definitely not. He, he thought all the money should go to him. <laughs> I think we can start getting questions from the audience as well. Yes, please. Uh, I'm just worried that have uh, involved a deliberate uh, philosophical choice, a deterministic choice that doesn't necessarily need to be made. I mean, we're already seeing it in company profiling certain customers about whether they should pay more for their insurance, whether they've got a bad credit rating, as if there's a de definitive link between the two. I'm just worried that this is resting on a philosophy that isn't necessarily even proven within philosophy, that the debate's still there, and that we're making too many assumptions that 
determinism has a lot going for it that it doesn't really deserve. That's my major problem. Are we giving determinism far too much credit in this technology? Um, can you say a bit more about how determinism... Well, the, in things like, it's going to cost me more to have car insurance if I've had a bad credit rating in the past because they see me as an unreliable person. There's a deterministic link between the two. And that this deterministic link is it, it's costing me, or it's not, this is a hypothetical case, but would be costing me a lot of money. Now, that rests on us accepting that there are deterministic things between these two things that I don't necessarily has been proven, even within philosophy, it's still a huge debate. Well, I, I don't think it's um, inevitable that technology will advance in the ways um, you know, we've been um, you know, talking about. Um, I mean, the, these are some of the, the, the possible scenarios that I think um, it would be wise to, um, to think about now, um, before before it's too late. I mean, we're we're now in a position where we can shape how we want technology to um, to advance. Um, we we um, Roger was talking about um, um, you know finding um, a, a community of, of um, um, people who might regulate um, emerging technologies in a way that society would ag- agree with. Um, I don't think we've already got this sort of deterministic choice in place, that we're making decisions that this is necessarily linked to that. I think you see this. We've seen this with genetics, and I think you do see it with imaging to some extent as well, in the sense that um, information about an individual suggests that they're likely, they have a predisposition. I mean, I think with mental health or, you know, dementia, that, that um, I think the images will... Will, 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 will feel that uh, they, they, they could detect early signs of, of, of some of these conditions, which, um, you know, in, in a medical context, you could say, well, that's, 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 that's good, because maybe an early diagnosis means that, the, the, you know, you can delay the onset of, of Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever, you know. Um, but um, if, if, um, if we're worried about insurance companies or employers, then calculating, you know, making risk, risk assessments. I don't, I don't think this means they're committed to sort of philosophical determinism. That it just means they think that the likelihood of a certain condition eventuating is, more, is increased by the information they now have. Uh, but of course you could... You mean you, so that is deterministic. That sounds deterministic to me. No, I think it's like... It's like, it's like I mean, it's a, I think likelihood is, uh, you know, all the time we have to determine whether something is more likely than not. Um, and um, it doesn't. I mean, it's only if you've got a probability of one that I think you would say this is definitely going to happen, and that this is causing it. Mm. But um, but I mean, I I, 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 I I think I can understand where you're coming from in the sense that so much of the science here does seem to be about profiling individuals, saying this is your future. This and and, and actually. Whether you like it or not, you're trapped in this. But no comeback. Yeah, that, that's the problem. You can't say you're wrong. Here. No. Because let them make a decision before they've even happened. Well, it's yeah. Right, right, but, but, but I would like, like, if 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 I were to to to, to defend the, the the science part of it in this case, uh, the there are very few claims of 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 very few people you would find them confident to say that we can tell you your future yeah. by knowing your brain imaging or 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 g- 
genetic material. Uh, and, and it, perhaps the good thing about it is that even, even statistical approaches to how we look at data are now getting like, like farther and farther from the idea of replication, which means if I do the same experiment again, what is the likelihood that I get exactly the same response to uh, expectation, which means if I, if I, if I run, run a large sample of uh, like second experiment, what, what proportion of uh, the, 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 my, my observations are going to be similar to the previous ones, which, which I think takes into account very much yeah, the fact well, that... it's in your hands, though. Sorry? I mean, that's why it's in your hands as scientists that hopefully we can trust at universities that are doing research. But this information doesn't necessarily stay in scientists' hands. It's, no, it can I'm, easily I'm, I'm be transferable about... to the state that can understand what our preferences are, whether we're going to be more likely to uh, rebel against... Uh, regimes, things like that. Well, it stays in your hands, that's fine, I trust you, you're a nice guy up there. But if it's in a, a politician's hands, I might not trust it as much. And there's no guarantee that you can hold the information if the state wants it. At the moment, there's not. Well, uh, if, as, as I was saying, like, I, I don't think that this scientific uh, trend is, is taking the profiling aspect very seriously. Because there is a very strong awareness of, of, of the limitations of what you can say with data of, of, of any kind of nature within neuroscience. Perhaps we can go to the next question if there is. Yep, please. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have two questions. Uh, first of all, what would each member of the panel say is their definitive work on privacy? And Sorry, second, can you repeat the first one? Yeah, what would each member of the panel say is their definitive work on privacy? Okay. And the second question is how do they feel about um, information technology, in particular the advent of social networks and how we somewhat willingly give up our privacy and they, they use that for data to, uh, to companies? So the second question is about social networks. Yeah, right? social networks and the way we um, willingly, we somewhat willingly give up our personal data, and the social networks give that to advertisers. How okay. do they feel about that? Does that okay. undercut their feeling about elemental fear of giving yeah, away let's privacy? See what, what, what you want to say about? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that. Um, Many people have really thought through the implications of just giving up um, their personal information, um, you know, in, in social networking. Um, I mean, we, we know that um, there have been instances um, of people putting um, very embarrassing pictures up on Facebook, and their employers have, have subsequently seen them, and they've even been sacked. Um, I don't think anyone would have, you know, perhaps thought of that as an implication of, of what they were doing. Um, when you're behind a computer screen, um, you don't necessarily feel as if you're being watched by the whole world. <laughs> um, I suppose it's a bit like being in a car where you feel protected, so you take further risks by being in a car in being contained and feeling safe um, than you might um, you know, on, on a moped or a motorbike where you do feel more exposed. Also, I, I think the first question was... Definitive work on privacy. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think we would all say this book. 
<laughs> Would we not? Yeah. This, this book, I Know What You're Thinking, is, is a compilation of many essays by, by both neuroscientists, ethicists, and, and, and philosophers on, on, on this issue. Really, you should have predicted that. <laughs> it was, I'd just say that um, in, in, the, in the legal sphere, the def- well, the seminal work, uh, seminal, is an article in the Harvard Law Review in the 1890s by, <laughs> by, by uh, Warren and Brandeis. Yeah. And, and um, this, this was sort of joining the dots of a number of legal claims like defamation and so on and saying, actually, what's at issue here is privacy. But what provoked this was the development of the camera and uh, unauthorised photographs being taken. That was where it started. Um, but, I mean, from that point on, you know, just to say what's the definitive work on privacy is, I'm afraid, like, you know, what's the definitive work on justice or equality? Well, no, actually, not, maybe not. Well. No, it's just on equality or whatever, you know. It's just there are, there are so many major works on this that... Uh, Yes, I was, I was going to actually abstain from that question about the definitive work because <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. Um, I think I'd need a lot more time to think about it. But about the social networks question, I guess I, was, uh, I kind of agree with what Sarah here has said, which is that um, we often consent to something without necessarily having thought about all the possible further implications. So in our minds, we may have through lack of imagination or rush or whatever, we may have only thought of a quite a limited number of consequences of this agreement. So obviously if you go on Facebook, you've got all kinds of goals that you're hoping to advance socially. And it may well be that you haven't actually necessarily thought through what else might be done with the data. So um, I think it's quite a different thing asking about what somebody would think in a particular context if they were absolutely clear what all the uses were going to be, and, as it were, a blanket, uh, thinking that that tells us anything about a wider um, consent. Okay. Uh, I also want to add something about this one, from, because there is a, uh, an interesting paper was published last year uh, looking at this uh, question of, of what could possibly motivate people to, to give away information about themselves for free for everybody else to see. Uh, the paper's claim was that uh, expressing information about yourself in, in a sort of publishing way, in, in the way that we see in, in social media, is inherently rewarding. And uh, people get uh, satisfaction out of knowing that everybody knows something about them now. The, the, that paper, you, you can contest the methodology and, and, the, and, and how they have actually measured this kind of idea, but, but that in itself could be also an important issue to take into account. And interestingly, that paper also did a lot of fancy neuroimaging, and, and they showed that when, when, when people actually put some, some information for, for everybody else to see about where they have gone for holidays, apart from the fact that they are reminiscing about the memory of the holidays, there is an over and above that level of, if you like, brain reward response without falling into the hazards of reverse inference. That, that, that paper claimed that, therefore, it must be satisfying. So you, what, what I mean here is that uh, from the psychology and, and, and neuroimaging point of view, there seems to be also 
some 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 claims for maybe it's not just that people are people don't know what they are doing when they are giving away information. Maybe there is also some inherent value for them, uh, which you could think of it as something like fame or self-image or whatever that is. So another question, perhaps? Oh, okay. So, yeah. Of the 1890s article, and what was the name of the uh, paper that you just mentioned? Like uh, that one, I should, I should you, you uh, should get back to me, and I should find it on Google. Okay. Memory fails me, but you probably remember. yeah. The uh, the the title of the um, oh sorry, the authors of the Harvard Law Review article, uh, Samuel J. Warren and Louis Brandeis. Warren Warren and Brandeis. Okay. So, next question over there. I actually have a company in node networks and cryptography. So, from the science side, or rather IT side, I can add a few things possibly. I don't know if you're aware of um, lifeline um, biocryptography and a few things that have come up with that, which are, I find rather scary. I mean, and there are hacks that I've sort of a few of us have come up with, so it's not necessarily as secure as everybody thinks, but something that's going to be tracking a lot of people possibly in a few years, especially on a political standpoint. Could you hold the microphone closer, please? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Um, no, I was just saying about um, lifeline biocryptography. I don't know if you've really come across that that much or what your thoughts are on it. No? Um, and there's also a patent which was recently given in the States to do with emotional resonance um, and sort of the cultural background, which also is rather disturbing. Uh, perhaps you could tell us more first what, how, how you think that relates to, to, to the issue of, of neuroscience and, uh, and, and, and like, like well, it's really to do with, it's science. really to do with privacy in that aspect and the sort of compromise, you know, the, how everybody's interacting with everybody else. And also I mean, on the side of neuroscience, not so much technical neuroscience, but when you combine that with behavioral prompting and analytics, it's sort of as somebody else pointed out and as you yourselves discussed, it's not simply the, the mechanics of the brain, it's how you actually feed thoughts to people and then realize their emotional responses. So, and, and that's being tracked quite well. You can do that nowadays. So sort of going towards the future, one of the aspects is cryptography and maintaining a sense of privacy within society. And I was just wondering in particular, especially with the you know, biocryptography lifelines, which it takes tracking to a completely other level, what your thoughts were about that. Sorry if I'm getting a bit too geeky on that sense. I do realize it's not everybody's cup of tea. Any comments? Um, I don't think I know enough about this technology to be able to comment off the top of my head. Um, I'm afraid I'm in the same position, yeah. Sounded like one of your thought experiments, I think. So. <laughs> I don't know about it either. No, it's okay. Uh, for, for me, the, the issue of cryptography and... and uh, Correct me if I'm wrong in understanding its relationship to, to brain sciences. For example, one way that it could be in, in, important would be if you could use, for example, brain imaging to, 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 to figure out, for example, my, 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 my passwords for my bank account. Is that right? Sorry, I mean, there has been studies to do um, with automatic responses to act as cryptography keys. So you'd learn a piece of music and um, you would automatically learn the positioning without having conscious recollection, and that's used as a cryptographic key. 
Um, so that would be, a, I think, a relatively direct link. So you oh, know. I see. I see. Okay. So uh, what, what what you're saying is that actually your, your your brain responses would be taken as, for example, as as a measure of your identity. Let's say. This is, this okay, is okay. Um, well, it, as part of the key to information. Mm -hmm. So when you go back to, um, is privacy a commodity in that sense? Mm -hmm. So is it, is, it, is it your asset? Are you giving it away? Can somebody steal it? Do you want them to steal it? Well, this turns out, I, I think as, as, a, as a new case, I think now we can, now that we have clarified what you mean, perhaps you can ask how, how, how you feel about the, it, its relationship to... to, to, to the issue of privacy. If, if I was to use some, in the same way that we use biometrics for, 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 for identifying people, if I was to use, for example, brain responses as a metric or as an identifier of your identity or, or as a marker of your identity, do you think the same kind of rules of ethics apply here? Is that right? Yeah. That's a very good question. Thank you. <laughs> so... Well, I'm still not... I probably haven't properly understood the work you're talking about, but it seems to me we often draw a distinction between the brain and the mind, and I'm not sure that there's anything very different about using brain patterns um, to identify people from any other means. Isn't it just another biometric... Obviously, it's how everything works together, but as we were talking about future technologies, and obviously the, you were bringing up thought experiments, well, this actually isn't really technically a thought experiment anymore. It's actually happening. So obviously, slightly on, it's not quite blue sky anymore. It's going beyond the laboratories. It's, I think you know, MIT labs have got a few startups pushing some of these forward. So in the next, I mean, with technology accelerating quite so fast, I certainly imagine it'd be in the public sphere in the next five years. Um, so it's sort of it's going to have a direct impact on society. But presumably, the um, the scanners used to pick up the um, the signature or the pin brain waves. Well, they're would very... still be constrained by what we're used to seeing. Well, the thing is, I mean, as you pointed out, that's one aspect of the technology. There are other aspects of the biocryptography which wouldn't necessarily just be on the neuroscience aspect. So you could look at eye responses and triggers. It's how everything feeds together with analytics, really. And it's just, I, f I find it rather, I mean, it's, in, it's my field and I find it rather scary. And you're talking about legislating things. Uh, I, I want to, add to, 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 to perhaps rephrase the same question in, in a different way. Why should we be afraid of such a situation if, if we have accepted that, for example, your fingerprints or, or your DNA can be used to identify you? In what fundamental way is this, like, like where is the, the, the ethical issue with, 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 with using uh, this kind of thing for, for identification, given that we have already accepted uh, for example, the, 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 the relevance of fingerprints or, or, or DNA. In what way are we uh, accepting further new risks? You see my point? Where is your worry? Sorry, it wasn't simply using the tool of neuroscience as a layer. It's how it all works um, in unity. 
and how actually people can be tracked and identified and their thought patterns altered, as I mentioned with the American patent, um, you know, with the emotional resonance. It's not just what you're, you're thinking. It's not necessarily the image. It's how people prompt you what to think and then track you using your biometrics. And it's not, I mean, it's not just your phone, it's everybody else's phone. I know I'm sounding a bit um, paranoid here, and I do appreciate that. And I've but you already talked about that. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's not a, a very large step to think that um, you, you know, such um, pins or passwords might be um, built in um, to sort of the um, technology that we use every day, like laptops. I mean, we, we already um, you know, have um, sort of fingerprint access um, to our laptops um, in order to ostensibly make them more secure. But of course, um, you know, once the computer and your IP address is linked with your identity, then whatever you do online can be traced back to your well, the, This was the lifeline technology that I brought up, which I'm particularly concerned about, because they're proponing that and saying this is the best way without get, so you won't be defrauded. So a lifeline biocryptography, which is basically your mobile phone that you'd have on you all the time, they'd tra- they track you through analytics and predict your movements um, to the next degree. And I find that combining with your, your fingerprint, your iris recognition, combined with everything else, there's a, there's a lot of information information and that's you know it's basically you'd be walking around with your personal dog tag um, so it is minority report as somebody sort of suggested earlier and that's pretty much here that technology's been launched a month or so ago so when you combine it all together you're sort of thinking well there should be some possibly discussions on the legal framework about the value of privacy and especially how it can be abused well, it'll be, in, yeah, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how the, uh, the revised um, data protection laws will address this. Um, we were talking earlier about um, you know, having a reasonable expectation of, of privacy and, um, and what would feed into that. Um, but I, I know that um, the European Commission is suggesting that we, we should have a right to be forgotten. Now, <laughs> quite what that means... <laughs> Especially if you're on, um, you know, Facebook, mm-hmm. um, you know, remains remains to be seen. Uh, I mean, it's quite interesting. I'll just see if, if you have any further questions to take. But 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 if not, then I'll get back to you. Is is there any other questions that that? Uh, oh, okay, good. So let's let's start with you at the front, and then you, and then you. Yeah, the front row, please. Yep. Thanks very much for that discussion. I just wondered, what do you think the effect of the erosion of privacy will have on um, people's health and, I suppose, some of the the softer things? Because although certain technologies can be used to help, for instance, MRI scans, I think the constant kind of public exposure that people have um, can sometimes place, um, yeah, stress on people. and, And we kind of need that... Uh, time away uh, from our public face and you know to meditate or whatever and just to be human so I just wondered what your thoughts were on that yes well I'm not sure that I would want to sign up to being in the big brother house um, put it that way Um, I don't think it would do my health any good whatsoever (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I think the um, you know one of the philosophical justifications for privacy is is that it gives you space to be non-conformist, 
and that uh, you know in a free society you need some privacy otherwise you're constantly um well like in in you know uh, um in the Orwellian, you know, uh, dystopia, you 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 just worried about just having to stay on the norm. Um, so, I think if you yeah, if you're a, a sort of adventurous soul, you would you do you you would need privacy. And um, um, of course, there are sort of cultural differences, aren't there? In, yeah. in how we yeah. think about privacy, yeah. and how important we think. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, uh, I wanted to, to, to also resonate with, with what Sarah said at the beginning uh, that a lot of like our if you like worries about how bad it might be when everybody knows the contents of your uh, brain I wouldn't say mind but, but brain uh, we do not really have any principled way of predicting them or being afraid of them, I would say. Mm. Uh, Sarah, do you want to comment on that one? Because I think this, this question particularly relates to what you said. Well, first I wanted to ask you, why just now you said you wouldn't say mind, but you would say brain? Because it seems to me that most of people's anxieties about this do relate to the mind and not the brain. I don't care. Well, the, I would say brain. the technology, uh, as far as the technology is concerned, the technology is reading the brain. You could, in, under, under specific experimental conditions, you could say that probably what we are reading from the brain is the content of the mind. Like, for example, where you are paying attention to or what word you are searching for in, in, in your head. Uh, you could probably say that. But, but eventually, what, what, what your technology is doing is reading your brain states. Sure, but the question about whether this is likely to impact on our health, or say through stress, is presumably because there's some worry that what we're seeing in this information is information about the mind. Uh, no, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. I, I agree with, with, with the connection that, that one could yeah. make later on to, 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 to bring up that worry. But, but I wanted to make the distinction that the technology itself, what it does, is brain reading. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think I would agree with you that it, it looks as though this is the difference between the public and the private is something that we all seem to care hugely about. And if that's right... Um, Either we're all going to be very stressed and harassed once that line gets shifted, or we're going to change into other kinds of creatures. Uh, perhaps you can take the next question. Sorry, you, you actually kind of answered my question, so... Oh, okay. Sorry. So, so the question was answered? Is, that's great. So, so we have one more at the back, and then two here. Okay, that's good. So, oh, maybe... All right. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Um, just on what you just said, I think what a lot of people forget is that privacy is not something like 150 years ago, you didn't have your privacy because you had noisy neighbors and it's always been there. I think it's just because you, um, because it's like a global community that can potentially take part and that it might get so scary. But uh, for most of history, people were scared of what their neighbors thought, what the, I don't know, priest across the street thought when they saw someone going in. And it's not like it's a completely new thing only because now there is Facebook and the Internet. It's just that now it's different and it has shifted into the digital age. 
Just, yes. yeah. That's a very relevant comment, I think. Let's, let's go to that question over there. Thank uh, you. We have something like three minutes, so I want to see if we can get through all of the questions. Yeah. Okay. Um, my question is in relation to the earlier discussion on um, regulation and the role of the moral com- community. And in terms of thinking about emerging technologies, um, how we understand the role of public engagement and outreach with with ordinary people like us in terms of how we understand privacy and respect in this context, what it means, and then in terms of how decisions are made about that, what is how we democratise that in terms of involvement of the public. Thank you. I think, you know, the, the, the principle here, I, I, I think I, I, I'm very clear about that, um, you know, deliberative democracy is, is what we should be trying to do in relation to these technological developments. There was a I think it was a very interesting report from the Nuffield Council on Bioethics at the end of last year about emerging biotechnologies, but you could have generalised it to emerging technologies. It's all about much more public engagement. So I think the principle is, is, is clear, at least for me. <laughs> you want to democratise these decisions. Um, the problem, I think, is the practice is, is how, you, how you actually organise things in a way that... Um, People who are, you know, not experts on these technologies can get up to speed with with what with with what's going on in a way that they can then engage with the the policy and the ethical issues. Um, and uh, I don't think we've 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 been conspicuously successful in doing that. I, I, you know, I, I rather like the idea of there being foresight sort of horizon-scanning expert groups that that get this onto the agenda very early on. But I must say that in, in the work I've done in, you know, with the academies and where they've done public engagement, I've not really been terrifically impressed by, by what we've got out of that. And uh, I, I rather regret that. When we had an exercise some years ago in the Academy of Medical Sciences where it was drugs futures, it was trying to work out what the public felt about the use of drugs for recreational purposes, for um, treatment of mental health, for enhancement. And... Although the dialogue on recreational drug use was very robust, um, on, the other, on the other issues, which were more kind of the future, it was much less clear, and, and I, I, it was difficult to get people engaged. So, I, I, you know, I, I have great sympathy with, with, with public engagement, but how you do it... And, of course, you... you sorry, go on, but, I mean, you, there is also the danger, of course, well, well-known danger that... that, that um, that regulators or governments will use public engagement to, to just to justify the decision they've already come to. So, you know, um, if the public engagement comes up with the right answer, uh, that's fine. But if it doesn't, they'll keep on publicly engaging until they get the answer they want. Mm-hmm. It's that, about how you create meaningful ownership of those decisions by the public as in, in partnership with the regulators or, or the yeah. government decision makers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, there's a really interesting organisation called Involve, um, and they work with the... Um, with biz um, and science-wise, yeah, it's, um, interesting. So let's just get the last question over here, yeah, please. Yeah. In his in his future, being able to read people's thoughts and stuff, how would you respect the privacy of children? Uh, that, uh, yeah. How do you respect the privacy of children? Children. Can I just go very quickly on this? I mean, research on children is one of the most difficult um, areas of all, I think, and uh, because you, you can't get consent from the... Well, assuming they're young children, they, they can't consent. So, you know, regulators rely on what's in the best interests of, of children. 
Um, and best interest is such a, a flaky concept that, again, there's a real danger here that um, the people who are you're relying on best interest just do just plead it to do what they find convenient or what to do. It's, it can be abused. I, I think children are a very vulnerable population that we can't defend through consent, but although paternalism's not, you know, exactly flavour of the month philosophically, we do need a kind of enlightened paternalism with children. But I, 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 I can't give you there's any guarantee that, that their privacy is protected. Yeah. Okay. I guess it's a good time to put our hands together and say thank you.